Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We have a pair of tales for you tonight. First, a couple searches for a cure to their son's illness, but may lose their minds in the process. Then, a man struggles to survive in a starving neighborhood that's turned to desperate measures. Our first story comes from Corey Ferenkoff. Corey Ferenkoff lives on Cape Cod with his wife Gabrielle and works as a librarian. His work has been published by Three-Lobed Burning Eye, Smoke Long Quarterly, The Southwest Review, Uncharted, Cemetery Gates Media, Reckoning, Bourbon Pen, Tiny Nightmares, Flash Fiction Online, and elsewhere. To learn more, follow him on Twitter at Corey Ferenkoff or on the web at coreyferenkoff.com. Children of the night, join me 
for Corey Ferencoff's Children of the Swamp, a Tales to Terrify original. The swamp swallowed time. Rue couldn't remember if it had been days or weeks since she and Tom waded into the knee-high slurry, squelching muck eternally sucking at their heels. The shallow waters stretched to the horizon. Clumps of reeds and dead, barkless trees divided the otherwise bleak uniformity. Their village used the swamp's edge as a burial ground. The dense, muddy bottom devoured anything left long enough on its surface. At least, that's what the villagers told themselves. Sometimes, Rue and Tom would pass a rotting shack on a slight rise, doorways just inches above the water. Old radios and car batteries half buried in the muck. The occasional crumbling habitation reminded them the water hadn't always been there. The swamp had once been a prairie home to herds of cattle that feasted on grass that had drowned decades ago when the oceans rose. Rue and Tom slept inside the hovels each night, the smell of rot and moss invading their dreams. Rue swore there was a third breath beside their own, but she could never locate the source. Only their twin footprints marred the mud beyond the doorway. The subtle rasp hadn't been there when they started, only haunting their tracks after the first few nights. Do you think Kale's still alive, or any of them? Tom asked when they woke at dawn, wind bending the reeds, only the faintest sun reflecting on the water. Yes, they have to be. It hasn't been long. We still have time, Rue replied. It's been weeks. No, you're wrong, Rue said, but Tom wouldn't meet her eye, only nodding, lip clenched between teeth. They had left their son out of desperation, his breath ragged, but still rhythmic. Neither had spent more than a day apart from him before the illness set in. Kale was the sole reason they'd waded into the swamp. A wasting disease had swept through their village, infecting only the young. The numbers seemed endless. Prayers were sung from sunup to sundown as their neighbors deposited the dead by the stagnant water. Their son had been one of the last to contract the illness. His fever came suddenly. Blood dripped from his mouth, staining his mother's skirt as she held his head in her lap, confirming their family hadn't outrun the plague, even though... Their orchard was so far outside of town. Kale would be 15 in fall. The disease should have skipped him, being so close to adulthood. There's been rumors circulating about a village at the center of the swamp, a town elder had said. They harvest a curative fungus. None of our previous searches managed to reach them, and none have come back. 
Old maps say it should be there, but no one's managed to find it. And that's the only way? We would ask. With a sick child, it's the only way. No one lives through their illness. We can send two of our own to watch your boy in the orchard while you're gone, as long as you bring back enough for the rest of us. The elder handed Rue a number of tattered, moth-eaten canvas sacks to gather what they could. He also gave her a pair of curved blades. And what are these for? Rue asked. They aren't violent people, are they? Not as far as we know, but the other things you'll find in the swamp, the ones that take the bodies, I can't say the same. You'll know what to do when the time comes. Rue and Tom had yet to see the things that lived in the swamp, but they had heard them. Something akin to footsteps in the water, just out of sight, a sudden stirring in the reeds, dropping to stillness when they neared. Voices just on the edge of clarity. Rue wondered if the breath she heard at night belonged to such creatures. But why would they leave us for the morning, she wondered. The hunt is always easier at night. At times, the fear made her want to turn back. But without the fungus, Kale stood little chance of making it through to his next birthday. The flesh of their lower legs had begun to take on a paler hue, a softness about the muscles, weakness in the ligaments. The water wore at them, eroding skin and bone, leaving little less of Rue and Tom each day. Do you think Kale is alive? Tom asked again. It was the same question he always asked as the sun crossed its zenith or as it rose, or as it set. In truth, everything else that was said before and after could be reduced to the same thing. How far do you think those birds have flown, he asked. How many horses would it take to drink this swamp dry? Rue heard Kale's name in each. A thousand questions, all getting at one answer. He has to be. We haven't been gone long. Rue replied. No, not long, Tom added. Every answer had also become the same. It had to be. Without hope, they were just alone in a never-ending swamp, searching for dry land on which to sleep, another fish to snatch from the water to sustain life one more day. Kale spent hours beneath the apple trees, plucking fruit and telling stories to the cats, lazing about in the shade of the old rusting tractor. Rue had heard so many of her child's tales, the one about the vampire in the old castle, the one about the mermaid frozen in ice, the one where a young boy that looked strikingly like Kale grew wings and flew around the entire kingdom, so high nothing could reach him. They revisited fairy tales Rue's mother had told, she and Kale reclining on rough wooden furniture in the open air the hum of bumblebees a constant companion. Rue taught Kale's story structure, the importance of considering his listener, the necessity of humor when tales got too dark. He'd been an apt pupil, absorbing every scrap of advice like a sponge. Kale's stories helped Rue work and took her mind off the repetition. Their previous harvest songs had stopped when the illness began. 
Rue had dismissed the hired help, leaving her and Tom to pick up the slack. They couldn't risk additional contact. The stories set the pace of their labor. The stories made the day more than what was measured in bushels and sacks. The stories kept their family together. Can you do one about a mother and father who carry their son to a neighboring kingdom? Rue asked one day. A kingdom where there are no worries and the fruit picks itself. I can try, Kale said, spinning a story while his parents plucked apples, keeping their day swimming forward, keeping some sliver of hope lodged in place. When the day was done, Rue, Tom, and Kale carried the last bushels of apples home to store in the cellar. Kale made a joke about apples not falling far from trees and how it would make their job a lot easier if they did. (laughs) Rue laughed. Kale always knew how to make bleak times light even though their bodies were sore and worry seethed in their minds. That was the image Rue kept with her as she slogged on, her family passing beneath the apple trees, Kale's latest story echoing in her ear. The laugh swam up from beneath the gray skin of a dead cedar, a singular magpie perched in a leafless canopy. Rue drew the blade, leveling it in front of her chest. She searched for a shadow splayed across the water's surface, for a silhouette standing behind the tree. But as she looped around the dead trunk, she found nothing, just the flap of wings as the magpie fled its roost. You heard that, right? Rue asked, turning to Tom, who held the bundled sacks before his chest like a threadbare shield. The laugh? Yes, the laugh. Clear as day. But there's nothing here. The water's shallow, but it's not that shallow. You know the stories of what lives out here? It may be one of them, following us, waiting for us to get tired. Let's not think about the stories. That's all they are. But the village in the center of the swamp is a story, too. If we forget one, don't we? No. The village isn't a story. The village is there because Kale needs it to be there. I'm sure we'll find it soon. Another night and another decrepit cabin. The roof was torn open, the midnight sky clear beyond the eaves, stars silver in the rolling hills of black. The mud beneath them was warm, despite the chill evening air. Rue lay with the blade at her side, fingertips brushing the cool hilt. Tom slept nearby, turned away, the mold-pocked wall close to his face. Rue held her breath, listening for the third breath, searching for the unseen lungs that had lingered at their heels for days or weeks or months or... No, just days, Rue told herself. Just days. Then a sigh resonated from the far corner, followed by a rasping intake of breath. Rue rolled slowly, eyes tracking to the origin point. Stories spoke of claws and teeth and more mouths than one could count, but they were supposed to be aquatic creatures, gills instead of throats, fins over fingers. As her sight slid into place, the breathing stopped. There was a flicker of silver, pale limbs skittering across the mud floor. Rue swept up the blade and lunged for the doorway, following the thing that had been watching them sleep. She hadn't been quick enough to grab it, 
to wrap a hand around the creature's thin limbs or snatch its streaming hair. Ruth sprinted, crossing the cabin in three bounds. Tom followed after, a thousand questions falling from his lips. Then they were outside, properly beneath the stars, the pinpricks of light reflecting on the endless expanse of knee-high water beyond. The air had grown even colder, a frigid fear setting in, silencing the birds and the frogs that crooned in the night. Rue pulled up short at the water's edge, air sucked from her lungs. Tom froze at her back, a chorus of repeated no's creeping from his throat. Before them, hovering over the water, was the translucent specter of their son, bathed in moonlight, his tunic drooping from thin shoulders, his hair tangled by the wind, a splotch of crimson at the corner of his mouth. You're supposed to be home, Rue said, voice cracking. We, we still have time. The village isn't far. It's just beyond those trees. The elders said, it's, it's not, Mom, Kale said. There's no island. I've looked. This is what they tell the parents. What? Why would they? They believe it's a kindness, that things are better this way. That's what the others say, at least, Kale said. The others? Tom asked. The other children, their parents. The swamp claims the body, not the soul. Rue caught the flicker of huddled forms out of the corner of her eye children much smaller than kale crouching beside a patch of swamp grass gaunt faces turned up blood on their lips at their backs were the specters of their parents faces rue almost recognized red stains streaking across their chests and sides marring their otherwise crystalline forms but you you shouldn't be here rue said stepping toward her son, sinking up to her knees in the murky water. You know that isn't true. I've been here for months, just like you, Kale replied. No, this, this is how it is. No one recovers, parents or children. Kale's eye fell to the blade. Rue's heart raced. She had had a singular focus for months, days bleeding together, only one thought tugging her mind and feet forward. But now, that was dead. That inner voice smothered, promising lights all but faded on the horizon. She'd wondered why the bags the elders had given them were so tattered, why the blades were so cheaply smithed. They were certainly sharp enough for one job, <laughs> but one job alone. A sudden chatter rose from the dead children. Rue had almost forgotten they were there. The high whine drew her attention. A ghost child broke from the gathering, running across the water to a woman standing beneath a copse of barkless trees. The woman swept the child into her arms, placing a finger on his lips, imparting respectful silence. Rue looked away, back to her own son, thinking about the last time she held him close. On land, Tom drew his blade, metal scritching against the worn scabbard, tears continuing to line his cheeks. Rue retreated through the knee-deep water to her husband's side, unsheathing her own sword. The metal shook in her hands, 
the weight so much heavier than she remembered, but there was nothing else to consider. Like time, all hope was swallowed by the swamp's shallow waters. Are you still able to tell your stories here? Rue asked, throat going dry. Kale nodded, the corners of his mouth turning down, face creased with sorrow. Rue knew her son would want them to return home, to pass their days as best they could, but it wasn't their son's place to make the decision for them. Parents always got the final say. That was Corey Ferenkoff's Children of the Swamp, as read by L. Marie Wood. L. Marie Wood is a two-time Bram Stoker Award and Reisling-nominated author, screenwriter, essayist, and poet. She writes high-concept fiction that includes elements of psychological horror, mystery, dark fantasy, and romance. Wood is also a Michael Award winner and the founder of the Speculative Fiction Academy, an English and creative writing professor, and a horror scholar. Learn more at elmariewood.com. Thank you, Elmarie. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Carrie Lee South. Carrie Lee South's writing has appeared in The Dread Machine, Opus Comics, The Hunger, and elsewhere. She is currently working on her first novel. Connect with her at carryleesouth.com or on social media at carryleesouth. Listen with me, children of the night, to Carrie Lee South's Feeding on Ourselves, a Tales to Terrify original.
We ate the small dogs first. Their owners understood, I suppose. The neighborhood got together and held something like a funeral for each one. We'd gather around the weeping owner, giving our condolences, while someone tended the coals and roasted Gizmo and Max and Buddy's tender ribs and thighs, rubbed with whatever kitchen spices we had left. Somehow, it made things easier to pretend we were just having some kind of block party. The smell of roasting meat, crisp edges bubbling with brown sugar and garlic, wafted through the cul-de-sac and made us feel something close to normal. Just nine months earlier, Boa Chemical announced their revolutionary product, a powdery formula that could rid our properties of ants permanently. How were we supposed to know that it would work so well? When has any product worked exactly as advertised? Zeke was really the only neighbor I felt close to. He'd been an investment banker before all this started. I guess our circumstances were really the only thing we had in common. We were both in our mid-thirties and moved home to Ohio to care for our aging parents. He was good-looking, and you could tell he was kind of smug about it, like he'd groomed his unshaven face that way on purpose, like we weren't in the middle of the apocalypse. At the first BBQ, Zeke and I stood on the fringe of the gathering, arms folded, watching the grill smoke curl into the air. I was disgusted with myself. The rich, savory smell of tender, roasted ribs filled my mouth with a rush of saliva. Most of the small crowd watched as Mitch from the corner house occasionally lifted the lid to turn the meat, while a few stood next to the dog's owner, Carmen, rubbing her back as she clutched a photo to her chest and sobbed about her sweet peaty. They nodded while she told them about her Pomeranian's friendly disposition, but every so often you could see them turning their heads toward the grill, sniffing the air with hungry desire. I shook my head. I don't know what to do with my hands. Zeke smirked. Look at them, pretending to feel sorry. But you don't. We haven't had meat in months, Tony. It's time. He wasn't wrong. If we were lucky, a meal consisted of a small pile of mashed grains, one or two vegetables from the neighbors, and maybe a bite or two of a canned peach on a special occasion. I shuddered. I just don't know why she has to watch the whole thing. Self-preservation. Has to make herself believe this is natural. Watch, she'll have some just like the rest of us. What does it matter if the dog had a name? Sure enough, when it came time to make our plates, Carmen grabbed one of the legs. The drumstick? I didn't know what to call it. My stomach clenched with dread. Were we really doing this? My fears dissipated with the first bite. Crispy char on the outside, fat melting in my mouth. It was the best thing I had ever tasted. My ma lived in a little blue house at the end of the cul-de-sac. It was just her and Einstein, her African gray parrot. When I was a kid, I learned to be some combination of a perfect son and surrogate husband. My father left us before I learned to walk. I thought moving back home would be a temporary thing. I'd moved to the city to work in graphic design. Logos for new apps, mostly. I don't know. I guess I had this idea that I could live an artistic life. 
like art would matter forever, endure the ages. Crazy how fast it all went away. After all the ants were gone, the livestock died quickly. Entire fields of crops withered without ants to aerate the soil or cull the plagues of other insects. There wasn't enough grain to sustain the large-scale factory farming we'd grown accustomed to. It seemed like overnight we were hoarding canned goods and trying to turn our yards into viable gardens. At first, our whole neighborhood worked together, the small suburb now like a hippie commune, born out of necessity. Each house on the block was responsible for a different crop each season. The Browns grew squash, the Garcias grew green beans, the Johnsons grew tomatoes, and so on. We gathered in the streets to share tips on how to coax our sad little vegetables to grow, then divided each harvest, bartered half, and shared the rest. I grew peanuts. Learning how to keep them alive was my new full-time job. Without the ants, we had to dig spikes into the ground around the roots to keep the soil from getting compacted. Populations of aphids and other insects exploded, but we were afraid to use any more pesticides. So we watched the stems for minuscule eggs to scrape off and rub the plants with garlic. In her old age, Ma was needy. She clung to the last of her liquor bottles like a baby with milk. Einstein would sit on her shoulder, cooing into her ear. If I tried to get close enough to take the booze away, he screeched and flapped his wings at me until I backed off. Most nights ended in a staring contest between me and the bird, his eyes pinning with agitation while I waited for Ma to pass out. Once her head drooped into her chest, Einstein allowed me to brush her stringy hair, half carry, half drag her to bed, and wipe the drool from her chin. When the alcohol ran out, Ma didn't last much longer. The night before she died, we sat in front of the fireplace, our clothes hung on racks to dry. We barely spoke, just watched the flames snap. I heard her start whimpering. Then she began to wail. I tried to shush her. We didn't need to draw the attention of the neighbors. Ma, what's wrong? She sobbed. I just didn't think life would turn out this way. You just need to calm down. As soon as I reached out to touch her shoulder, the parrot shrieked and clamped his beak shut on my finger. I yelped and wrenched my arm away, pulling the bird to the floor in a tangle of angry feathers. It squeaked and flailed as it hit the ground. Don't hurt him! She was talking to me, not the bird. I clenched my bleeding fist. She treated that parrot more like a child than I had ever been to her. She sniveled as she lifted Einstein to her lap. The last time I saw her, she was stroking his neck. The next morning, she was gone. The bird still perched on her corpse. Einstein tolerated me. He might have been more devastated than I was when Ma passed. I just couldn't bear to let the neighbors know I still had a pet in the house. I was relieved not to have to worry about Ma anymore, but the bird was like my last connection to her, sort of like a surrogate brother. I kept him a secret. He sat alone on a single wooden perch for weeks, his toys long since shredded to pieces, plucking the silvery feathers from his chest one by one until he looked like a Thanksgiving turkey from the front. One day, a perfect imitation of Ma's voice came out of his beak. Hey there, sweet bird. He had always mimicked things, 
the sound of crickets chirping, the turn and click of a doorknob. I reached into his cage, and his eyes flashed at me, but he was too weak from hunger to attack. He stretched his neck out and let me ruffle the feathers, closing his long-lashed eyes with the pleasure of being touched for the first time in so long. He gobbled up whatever peanuts I could spare, standing on one foot and holding the nut up with his other. It seemed so human. And then, between the whistles and clicks, I'd hear Ma's voice again. Don't give me that look. You're going to get a girlfriend, Tony. Hey there, sweet bird. The problem started when the Browns noticed some of their squash missing. Everyone took stock of their own crops and found that their yields came up short. Accusations flew. The teetering building blocks that held our neighborhood together toppled. Trust had been the only tenuous thread connecting us, and it had been severed. Back when I was first learning how to grow food, Zeke helped me rinse the leaves to rid my plants of aphids. He said to me, the most successful parasite is the one that causes the least damage. I wondered which of my neighbors was the parasite that had caused our breakdown. People stopped leaving their houses unless it was absolutely necessary. Those lucky enough to have multiple family members took shifts patrolling their backyards. We didn't speak if we saw one another in the street. Our eyes rolled like panicked horses as we darted back inside. It was midsummer. The peanuts I had stored after the last harvest were running low. I couldn't live like this much longer. I held out my hand and Einstein climbed up. He clicked his beak, purring contentedly as he shuffled up to my shoulder. My mother's voice echoed in my ear. Hey there, sweet bird. You gonna get a girlfriend? A knock on the door made me flinch. Einstein beat his wings angrily. I crept to the door and opened it a crack to find Zeke on my doorstep. He smiled and held up a small bag. Hey, man, we're getting pretty sick of weed at my place. Came to see if you'd trade a bit. My heartbeat slammed against my temples. Let me grab some for you. Just a minute. I shut the door quickly and rushed into the basement with Einstein. Zeke couldn't know that he was still alive. I lifted him from my shoulder and set him down. He picked up my distress and paced back and forth, clucking. I tried to shush him, but birds don't understand silence. Silence means danger. I scooped a handful of peanuts from the cache for Zeke before I hurried to the top of the basement stairs and closed the door, leaving Einstein in darkness. I paused to take a few calming breaths, then cracked the front door open and thrust the peanuts out to Zeke. He pushed his way in. How you doing? I can't imagine it's easy being in here alone all the time. I'd lose my mind. I forced a smile. I'm getting by. A bang and a muffled screech from the basement jolted us. My hair stood on end while Zeke craned his neck around my house like a wolf picking up on the scent of prey. I nudged him back to the door. Damn, I knew that thing was going to fall over. I have to go check on that. Thanks for the wheat. I, I appreciate it. I'll come by soon. I scrambled back to the basement. Einstein flapped his wings in distress while a skinny rat ran through the room. It had knocked over a fire poker. On instinct, I grabbed the poker and slammed it into the rat. Its tiny bones popped and a few entrails leaked out of its abdomen. At least we wouldn't go hungry. 
I kept Einstein in the basement more often. The darkness simulated night, and he would keep quiet. The house became a jail cell for both of us. I didn't keep him caged anymore, but what was this house if not a cage of my own? I was certain every shadow that passed by my windows was a hungry neighbor, foraging and prowling. Einstein grew weak and despondent. He plucked more of his feathers. The guilt filled my belly with a searing heat every time he blinked up at me and Ma's voice croaked out of his small body. I tried to assuage it by giving him the last of my canned peaches. He eyed me while his tongue flicked at the syrup. Einstein sat on my shoulder in front of the fireplace as I watched the flames hiss, sucking hungrily at the wood. Then we heard a rustling sound coming from the yard. My whole body tensed, and Einstein let out a growl. I crouched low, picking up the fire poker, and crawled to the window. Someone was rooting through the peanut plants. I sat momentarily stunned. Then I began to seethe. I had spent months digging and turning that soil, fighting with those plants as they threatened to wither, shielding them from harsh temperatures, killing aphids by hand, digging irrigation channels, hauling water by the bucket. They were everything. All of the injustices of my life converged in this one moment. I gripped the fire poker. I bolted into the garden, and the intruder barely had time to react. When I whipped the fire poker against the side of his head, his skull cracked with a sound like a thick egg being crushed into wet splinters. I slammed the poker into him several more times, all rage and adrenaline, while Einstein flapped nearby. The pent-up energy unleashed in that moment spent all of my strength. My legs went out from under me, and I took a few shaking breaths, staring at the body. His hands were still gripping fistfuls of my peanut plants. I peered into his face, swollen and blood-soaked, and my heart jumped. I had killed Zeke. That was it. The line had been crossed. Weeks passed. In the quiet, still room, Einstein would talk to himself, parroting the sound of that horrible moment. Crack! The sound of iron breaking bone. The wet sluice of brain matter. Blood sloshing up the side of a fire poker. It was like he enjoyed watching my reaction every time he made the noise. My flinching became his new toy. He bobbed up and down, throwing his head back like it was his favorite sound in the world. The noise became so repetitive that it felt like my own heartbeat. The sound of Zeke's skull shattering echoed through the empty house. I tried shoving Einstein back in his cage in Ma's room. I even threw her blanket over the top, hoping it would calm him down or put him to sleep. Somehow, it made him even more insistent. He needed to get my attention. I shouted at him to be quiet, but you can't yell at a bird to shut up. It just makes them excited and they scream louder. They think you're part of some bird gang in a Central African rainforest, screeching together in the trees. The dull thud of metal meeting scalp. The crack like a gunshot. The squelch of the flesh. I tried drowning him out. I sang the national anthem at the top of my lungs. He looked at it like a challenge. His mimicking grew louder and louder. I covered my ears and shouted the lyrics while Einstein danced. The thwack of Zeke's head splitting. 
it got to the point where I couldn't tell if Einstein was actually making the sound anymore, or if I just had it playing on a loop in my head. I whipped around to the bird howling, stop it, stop it, stop it, until he cowered in the corner trembling. I grabbed him and threw him into the dark basement, slammed the door, and heard Ma's voice, thin and weak through the cracks. Hey there, sweet bird. By the time I calmed down enough to check on him, his small body lay on the floor, curled and stiff. The torture was over, for him at least. I didn't have it in me to bury him. I cradled him in my arms and took him to the fireplace, placing him gently among the logs and lit the flames. Watching, watched his remaining feathers blacken and crisp. As the smoke drifted up through the chimney, I couldn't help the rush of saliva at the scent of a broiling bird. The brother I never had. I couldn't do it. I shut the fireplace gate and turned my back. There was barely enough meat left on his tiny hollow bones anyway. People would start to swarm soon as the smell of roasting poultry wafted through the chimney out into the neighborhood. Better to get ahead of it. I flung open the front door and called down the street to invite them to dinner. Might as well foster some goodwill. The remaining neighbors began to gather. <laughs> Our numbers seemed to have dwindled. Mitch stepped into the yard with a few fresh-picked squash. Carmen brought green beans. I had a few spices left, and I put them on with a boiling pot of water and the last of my salt. Good old-fashioned boiled peanuts would do the trick. Carmen asked about the lump in my fireplace, but I told her a stray crow had fallen through the chimney, and I hadn't noticed until it was too late. Such a shame. As we sat at the table together, sharing a meal like old friends, we talked about feasts past, our favorite recipes, the foods we missed the most, and almost cracked a smile at the memories. The night wound down. I showed my guests out. We waved and said, Let's do this again soon. When the door clicked shut and the silence closed around me again, I went down to the basement to sate my whetted appetite. Luckily, the smell of the boiling peanuts and charred parrot had masked the heavy scent of old blood, where strips of Zeke's flesh hung from hooks in the cellar to dry out like jerky. After all, what does it matter that he had a name? That was Carrie Lee South's Feeding on Ourselves, as read by Rish Outfield. Rish Outfield is a writer, voice actor, and podcaster. He is the co-host of the Dune Steve audio fiction magazine and his own show, The Rish Outcast. He likes horror, Star Wars, and Girls with Glasses. And there is no job he cannot be fired from, at least not yet. Thank you, Rish. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Higra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we hunt down ancient legends for more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.